This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If there's one thing I've learned in my work in this area over the last decade or so, it's that no one discipline, international agency, you know, can, can solve this issue. It has to be something that involves everybody. And that's why I think framing migration as a form of adaptation um, can be a useful way to think about it. Hey, hey, welcome to Displaced on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. We're from the International Rescue Committee, and on our day jobs, we try to design, test, and scale new solutions. Today, we're beginning a new series focusing on climate change and how it's going to affect displacement. Right now, there are more people displaced than at any time since World War II. But with climate change both directly affecting whether people have to move out of certain places and indirectly through its effect on resource scarcity and particularly in weakly governed areas, we're likely to see displacement go to a whole new scale. I'm particularly excited about this series because climate change is often talked about apocalyptically and really hard to get your head around what it actually means for migration, displacement, and some of the solutions there. Um, So excited to actually dive into the weeds about how to understand it and what to do about it. I think the second thing that's important is that a lot of the frameworks that we have right now for dealing with displacement are inadequate when you look towards climate change. And so right now we're at this weird inflection point where the systems and structures we have are not tuned to be able to deal with what's about to come. And it's the reason to really consider this and and think about what we need to build. I spent a lot of my career thinking about climate change and how you avoid it and change the energy system. I actually haven't spent any time really thinking about impacts and what that means for adaptation, disaster risk reduction, or uh, actually migration. Today on this interview, we are starting with Jane McAdam, director of the Calder Center for International Refugee Law and a professor of law at the University of New South Wales in Australia. This is a really good interview just to frame the whole issue. Jane starts off by talking about the scale of the problem and which areas are going to be most directly affected and the timescales. But we quickly get into the legal framework questions. Because right now, as Grant said earlier, the whole institutional framework for dealing with refugees is not appropriate or fitted to climate change and displacement. And we ask her, do we actually try and redefine the the, the notion of a refugee? Or do we need to think about this whole issue differently? This was a great interview and and one in which I actually changed my mind on how I think about things. Uh, She dissuaded me from uh, thinking that climate refugees are the right way to speak about people who are uh, fleeing because of climate change. And she changed the way I think about whether a humanitarian lens is the right way to approach this. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. We hope you do too. Here's Jane McAdam. Jane, let's kick off, but we're going to talk mainly today about um, how we actually address climate change displacement and some of the legal frameworks that need to be addressed. But before we do that, can we start by talking about the actual nature of the problem and perhaps set the scene for us by giving a sense of the scale of displacement that you expect from climate change over the next few decades? Well, what we already know is that there are now more people displaced within their own countries by the impacts of disasters than by conflict. So 
there are around 61% pe- uh, of people are being displaced by disasters now versus 39% by conflict. Now, those figures are within countries, which is where the bulk of movement is likely to occur. Um, we don't have figures for cross-border movement, but what we do know is that disasters are going to be amplified by climate change. So the expectation is that that movement is likely to increase, not decrease, and there will be some cross-border movement, and, and there already is. So what we're looking at here is certainly a very challenging problem for the future, um, but it's already happening now. And I think that's really important to bear in mind because often people think about climate change-related displacement as something we need to maybe be thinking about at some point in the future, whereas we need to be addressing it now, to be thinking about it, understanding it, and putting in place sensible policies so that we can avert some displacement where possible, but also manage it where it does occur. And if if I understand right, you could imagine that that's actually a pretty conservative estimate of the number of people displaced by climate change because it's likely looking at sudden onsets of natural disasters, typhoons, hurricanes, um, rather than some of the longer term uh, displacement that may be caused by um, kind of slower changing climate issues. Yes. And look, that's a really difficult thing to measure. What, What we know is that there is a constant dialogue between the more rapid onset events and the slower processes. So, for instance, sea level rise, which we tend to think of as something that's a a much more gradual process, is actually affected by things like storm surges. Um, So people are actually feeling the impacts of of some of those so-called slower onset processes um, already. But you're right in that we don't really have the tools to measure that effectively. The Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre, which which probably has some of the best statistics on this, is trying to to start looking at this issue. But I think one of the biggest challenges is that climate change or disasters on their own don't cause movement. There's always an interaction between um, those things and pre-existing stresses like uh, environmental vulnerability, overpopulation, resource scarcity, uh, the things that trigger displacement normally when you add climate change or disasters into the mix, it becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back. And it's very difficult. Indeed, it's impossible to disentangle those effects. So that's why it's really hard to capture um, the magnitude of this with great precision. Can you just say a little bit more about the timing? Because you said right at the beginning that climate change is actually with us now and it's affecting displacement now. Can you give a sense of how this is going to affect things 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 years out? When, when is climate change really going to sort of start kicking in, in terms of severe displacement? Obviously, this matter, this will be hugely affected by the extent to which we address climate change. Basically, Ravi wants a playbook for the next 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> if I could give you that, I'd probably be winning the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> um, but, but as I said, what we do know is that uh, the, the disasters that we're already seeing all around the world are amplified by climate change. So effectively, what we start to get is disasters on steroids. And as things like cyclones uh, become more intense or other events become more frequent and or more intense, um, so too the the ramifications such as displacement are likely to increase as well. Now, one of the things that's uh, really interesting is that a decade or so ago, um, countries like Tuvalu and Kiribati in, in the South Pacific were told 
you've only got another decade left and, mm-hmm. and then you're all going to be displaced. And what we've seen is that that's not the case, um, but that can actually have knock-on effects whereby people might say, well, you know, we, we were told we couldn't be here uh, and, and, in fact, we still are. So is this problem really as pressing as we were led to believe? Now, on the one hand, a lot of people there will say it absolutely is. But I think this is where we need to uh, be very measured and rational about what the effects are, when we're likely to see them and plan accordingly so that people aren't stuck in a situation where, say, in 50 years' time, they have to uh, take, you know, self-help, find a self-help mechanism and, and take um, actions into their own hands rather than having rational policy frameworks that are there to enable people to move in a planned, um, safe way rather than in a, a very hurried way if and when it's it's not possible to remain. If I just take the example of, of some of those small Pacific Island countries, again, I think there have been a lot of um, depictions in the media that one day these countries will simply disappear under rising sea levels. Well, in fact, long before that, people are going to need to move because of a lack of fresh drinking water, a lack of safe shelter um, and livelihood opportunities. So those impacts are linked to climate change but are going to be felt long before that, that more physical inundation of their territory becomes really apparent. So let's get on to um, solutions and, and actually how you define climate-induced migration, as you put it. From a normative or, or legal point of view, how do you do that? And, and should we think of climate-induced migrants as, as climate refugees? Well, I think, as I mentioned before, it's really important to understand that climate change is one very important factor in the mix, but it's impossible to attribute movement solely to that ground. There are always a combination of factors that are going to push people to move and people's tipping points are different. So where I feel the pressure that for me it's become enough and I I need to move on, that might be different from where you feel that pressure. And in the slums of Bangladesh, when I was interviewing people there, people would also articulate their reasons for movement quite differently, even though they came from very, very similar backgrounds. Now, a lot of that's difficult for the law to capture. Um, And if I turn, for instance, to international refugee law, which I suppose is the paradigm that everybody jumps to as the one that is, uh, is the international legal basis for regulating forced migration for a particular group of people, I don't think it's particularly well-fitting in a lot of instances. Refugee law protects people who have crossed an international border. So at the outset, that's going to be a minority of people um, in the climate change context. And they're people who have a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership of a particular social group. If we break that down, persecution implies some sort of human agency. And even though we know that climate change is is attributable to human activity, it's a little bit too remote in that context to be understood as persecution in the way that is uh, interpreted in refugee law. So we've already got that, that hurdle, but it's made even more difficult by the fact that that persecution needs to be for reason of your race or your religion, your political opinion and the like. And the effects of climate change, as we know, are indiscriminate. 
But what I would say is that there are some situations where people will be refugees because of the broader context. So, for example, it might be the case that if somebody belongs to a particular political party that's out of favour with the government and they're affected by a disaster, then they might be denied humanitarian assistance. Now, that would ostensibly be on the grounds of their political opinion, but as it's linked into the context of disaster or climate-related displacement. In the context of uh, Somalia, for example, where famine combined with conflict and, uh, and, and disasters, we've seen people being granted refugee status under broader definitions of refugee in the African context. So there may be situations where uh, disasters interact with some of those more traditional refugee grounds to provide people with protection. But as a general rule, the refugee protection framework isn't going to help a lot of people. If we turn to human rights law, human rights law prevents countries from sending people to places where they face a real risk of being arbitrarily deprived of their lives or being subjected to inhuman or degrading treatment. And it seems to me that certainly at some point in time, cumulatively, where people may have run out of fresh drinking water, can't grow crops, can't live safely, uh, are at risk of disasters and being displaced over and over again, that that certainly should amount to inhuman or degrading treatment. The question will be, though, when should they be recognised as having that protection need? And in cases that have been run already through the courts in New Zealand, it's been found that at the moment, people who've made such claims from Tuvalu and Kiribati uh, are not yet facing such dire circumstances. And furthermore, there could be certain mitigating policies put into place that means further down the track, they won't be displaced. They could be protected from such harm. So that question of timing, I think, is, is really important to the, uh, the protection frameworks that already exist under international law. Just to push on one piece there, if you're thinking about putting together frameworks for climate-induced migration and there are all the challenges that you identified about actually knowing whether somebody was uh, – whether somebody migrated as a function of climate change, how do you gain traction over – or how do you identify, rather, a definition that provides sufficient traction to make meaningful movement on? Um, are there kind of examples or frameworks or definitions out there that you think make progress towards that despite some of the ambiguities? I think that's why trying to devise some sort of new agreement linked to climate change specifically is, is inherently problematic. And I think it makes more sense to look at the underlying human rights violations or the, the broader context rather than trying to pinpoint, has this person moved because of the impacts of climate change or not? Um, we start running into a whole lot of conceptual as well as practical problems there. And I think mm -hmm. that's why certain international initiatives, um, most fundamentally the Platform on Disaster Displacement and its precursor organisation, the Nansen Initiative on Disaster-Induced Cross-Border Displacement, have really made extremely important interventions on that front, such that we now have really important language in a number of international documents, not least the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration, which was adopted in December last year. And if I could just kind of come to some of those points, I think mm -hmm. what's 
been pretty much agreed upon now is that going down that or, or, or utilising that so-called climate refugee framework can be quite unhelpful, notwithstanding mm-hmm. the fact some people might qualify as refugees, as I've explained. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really not a helpful paradigm to use by and large. And we need to have a, a multi-pronged approach. So that includes... Um, on the one hand, disaster risk reduction and climate adaptation measures, and of course, mitigation, uh, you know, as the overarching mm-hmm. thing uh, as well. It, it means looking carefully at existing legal frameworks, such as the guiding principles on internal displacement, which in fact already can capture uh, movement linked to disasters. We, we have no um, lack of, of sort of soft law frameworks on internal displacement. The question there is is ensuring that states actually implement them and and put in place authorities that can oversee them to help people who do move within their own countries. And then it's about looking at humanitarian visa options um, so that if people are displaced across a border, they know they're not going to be returned imminently to a place of danger. And we've, we've had examples of that from around the world. I mean, the US, for instance, Mm-hmm. for a long time, had the temporary um, protected status mm-hmm. so that if somebody was already in the U- US at the time when their country was affected by a disaster, um, then a special uh, provision could be made to enable them to stay on in the United States past the expiry of their visa and be protected in that way. Um Similarly, Central American countries over the last couple of years in conjunction with the Nansen Initiative developed guidance on cross-border displacement in the context of disasters and climate change because it was realised in that region pretty much every country had been affected by disasters and people had crossed borders. And those countries thought, well, look, rather than regulating this on a very ad hoc basis, why don't we really sit down and come up with what sorts of temporary stay arrangements are needed so that we know when our own nationals are displaced, they'll get help. And likewise, we off, we will agree to provide that help if we find people from other countries crossing into our borders after a disaster has, has hit. It's also about, um, as I've mentioned, looking at migration as a form of adaptation in and of itself. The president of Kiribati was really big on this. He talked about migration with dignity, migration as adaptation. How do we let people take charge of their own lives and move if and when they wish to, which in turn can alleviate some of the pressure on the country at home. I thought it was really interesting for you to frame um, migration as a result of climate change as a part of adaptation. And it it just made me think, to what extent do you feel like um, we're excessively focused on physical infrastructure changes when we think about climate change adaptation, when potentially um, incentives and resources to enable countries to manage internal migration might be a really, really critical response. Obviously, that requires some physical infrastructure, but it's perhaps not as central to climate change adaptation as it could be. I think it's really important to take a a, a lateral thinking approach to adaptation um, and and to involve actors from a a range of different government departments as well as international institutions and and academic disciplines. I mean, if there's one thing I've learnt in my work in this area over the last decade or so, it's that no one discipline, international agency, 
you know, can, can solve this issue. It has to be something that involves everybody. And that's why I think framing migration as a form of adaptation um, can be a useful way to think about it. And of course, there are, there are critics too. I mean, I, I put this to the president of Kiribati when I interviewed him. I said, look, there are some people who say that migration as adaptation is another form of brain drain that the people who might leave Kiribati and and be able to take up those skilled migration opportunities are going to be your best and brightest. And his response was, well, we have no shortage of good brains here. And he said, "I, I really need to think about a variety of opportunities. I'm not saying that everybody's going to leave Kiribati, but I want people to have that choice. And he said, ultimately, that's what I'm trying to do is to empower people, to give them opportunities and also to make... Um, governments in the region, such as Australia and New Zealand, recognise how that migration can actually benefit their own societies. We're going to take a quick break and we will be back soon with Jane McAdam. You are indeed listening to Displace and we're talking to Jane McAdam. I want to come back to the question of what kind of framework globally is required to manage all this, because it feels impossible that individual nations can do this on a piecemeal basis, not least because, A, the scale of the migration that you might see is huge, B, it will disproportionately hit some countries much more than others, particularly those least able to cope in terms of their governance and resources. So that feels like it then forces you to define a framework for understanding and thinking about what climate change migration is. And, And yet, I get from the first part of your interview a sense it's really damn difficult because it's full of uh, multiple causes. So, at what? How? How long can we wait? You know, when, when is this something that we're leading towards in twenty years' time, or do we actually need to be moving faster to define a framework? I think actually, ironically, if we f- focus too much on getting some, you know, specific framework, particularly in a treaty form that's actually where we'll lose a lot of time because treaty negotiations are incredibly slow. They require compromise and they certainly require political will. And even once you get a treaty, it needs to be implemented and enforced. So if I look at the refugee context, we have a very long-standing international framework, the Refugee Convention from 1951 and its 1967 protocol. We now have 149 countries that are parties to one or the other of those or both. And yet we've got the largest number of refugees that we've ever had since numbers were recorded. And so I think what that shows is that it's the political will that's missing there, not the legal frameworks. There's a plethora of law uh, internationally, regionally and nationally, but we really need that political will to make that law have the effect that it's supposed to have. And that's why I'm not I'm not saying that we we just steer clear altogether of, of looking at these global frameworks, but I do think that if we fixate on what's the treaty framework going to look like, we could waste a lot of time doing stuff that can happen right now. So, I mean, governments today could make a real difference uh, to displacement in some contexts simply by creating building codes and enforcing them. Now, that's not as exciting, sexy as a treaty, but it could actually stop people from being forced out of their homes. It's ensuring that people aren't living in really vulnerable areas. So in Bangladesh, people who are living on riverbanks that are collapsing over and over and over again, how do we prevent that from happening? How do we find places where people can live safely? I mean, what's I think really interesting is that when we talk about displacement, 
Um, what we know is that sometimes that displacement might mean people are moving two kilometres away and then when the flooding subsides, they come back again. And then in a year's time, they might be moving again and then coming back. And that can happen over and over and over again, and it does, until one day somebody says, I've had this, I, I can't do it again. I'm going to move to the city and, and see if I can try my luck there. And, and in the context of Bangladesh, for instance, that might mean going to Dhaka, living in a slum area, and renting a rickshaw, walking around on bare feet, pulling people along in a rickshaw all day, and at the end of the day going home with maybe a dollar after you've paid the rickshaw owner for the, the rental of that. If they're the so-called economic migrants we hear about, uh, these are not people who are coming to, you know, to steal your jobs and, uh, and, and make, you know, a better life. That, that's the reality of what we're talking about. And so I think it's how do you get, first and foremost, governments themselves to recognise what do we do in our own countries to protect people who are at risk? And then looking regionally and sub-regionally, how can we assist each other? And then I think at the international level, part of the, 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 um, the solution that comes in there, part of it is through financing, through climate change funds and the like, Part of it is international cooperation and solidarity assisting uh, where governments can. And part of it has to be, I think, that uh, question of humanitarian assistance and providing migration outcomes for people. What Something that was said in the context of the global compact on migration negotiations, I think by the government of Vietnam, was if there are regular migration pathways, people will use them. It's where you don't provide them that people turn to um, you know, finding their own way. And that's where we start to see people undertaking really dangerous journeys, being exploited by people smugglers and the like. So we have to recognise that migration in all its forms is a reality. Um, and how do we in make it safe for people to, to do so? So I think that's also, if I kind of come full circle back to your question, um, the protection aspect is but one aspect in all of this. I think it's recognising climate-related migration fundamentally as a human rights issue and then looking at the various ways in which uh, it can be it can be approached. To, to ask a follow-up question there on the real shift from a protection regime to a human rights framework um, as appropriate for climate change. If you reverse this, do you actually think like the protection regime when you look at refugees is outmoded, right? Like is like does that also not do enough or is there something so fundamentally uniquely different that like that requires the difference of a framework? I think that's a, an age-old question and I, the way I would approach it is to say that although the refugee convention um, was drafted in 1951, it is a dynamic and evolving instrument that has actually kept pace with a lot of displacement in the way that its its terms have been interpreted, both in legislation as well as by courts and other decision makers. Um, so gender-related persecution doesn't appear in the text of that convention, but it's certainly understood now as being a form of, of persecution. Refugees lack the protection of their government, both in a, a kind of diplomatic sense as well as a, a human rights sense. And I think that the protection that refugees acquire uh, is first and foremost not being sent back to harm, but along with that comes a set of rights, a status. The, the full name of the Refugee Convention is the Convention Relating to the Status of Refugees. And, and it, it shows why they need that. Sometimes it's called a substitute protection by the international community because of the national protection that they've lost. That said, human rights law has since come 
to, uh, stepped in to fill some of the gaps that uh, that aren't covered by the Refugee Convention. So states are obliged, or in, in that sense of legally obliged, not to return people to torture, to cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment, to arbitrary deprivation of life or to the death penalty. So that that is um, where human rights law now expands the basis for non-return. And in many situations, in many countries, people who fit those broader human rights definitions are given a status equivalent to refugees. Jane, you, you mentioned earlier that you want to potentially avoid a treaty-based route right now. Um, and I, that resonated for me in terms of um, climate change mitigation, which I was involved in many years ago, because I think the energy and time spent there was huge and arguably wasn't the right way to, to go about things. You can't assume that a treaty will force countries to do something that they won't do anyway and create political will. You've actually got to create the practical confidence-building measures first. Um, so it sounds like that's kind of what you're driving at here. Um, to what extent do you think that those measures are totally context-specific and incredibly varied and have to be developed on a very, very case-by-case basis? Or are there three or four concrete practical steps you think most countries are going to need to take in this area? Well, I think you're right that, that you need to build that political consensus. Um, and I'm, as I said before, I'm not saying there's no way we should ever have a treaty on this. I just don't think the international community is is there yet. And so that's why these building blocks um, are part of that process of, of getting the international community there, but also, as you say, you know, taking action now. So I think some of those, I mean, I think for me, the, the overriding um, principles need to be respect for human rights and international cooperation. Um, and I guess, Beneath those is where you have those some of the the kind of more practical strategies which I, I mentioned before, and which were the recommendations that came out of the Nansen Initiative's protection agenda, which was endorsed by 109 governments um, several years ago, and they are building on disaster risk reduction, climate change adaptation, thinking about humanitarian visa opportunities and temporary stay arrangements to assist people if they're displaced or to prevent their removal if they're already in your country and a disaster hits, to look at migration as a form of adaptation and to encourage governments to uh, to think about how they might extend existing visa categories or potentially create new ones to help people in this context. And then looking at planned relocations as a, a way of moving people out of harm's way, um, but mindful of the um, the kind of fraught way in which they have, have at times been employed. Would you look at the kind of um, space that's looking at the relationship between climate change and migration? Are there other solutions, conservative to radical, that you find inspiring that people should be keeping track of? I think there's been a lot of really creative work done. Um, I think the, uh, I mean, I think the biggest breakthrough, if you like, has been the deliberate um, recognition and collection of evidence, you know, data-driven policies, if you like. I think when, you know, when a lot of us began looking at this a decade or so ago, 
um, we would all say, well, look, I'm not an expert on climate change. I know about refugees and I know about displacement. And and there was a lot of that sense of, well, I don't really understand this context, but here's what I know. Where we've moved on in leaps and bounds is huge amounts of evidence has now been compiled, really fine-grained evidence from, a, a you know, regions all over the world. Um, but we still also get some... Um, very theoretical or academic work that sometimes is divorced from context. And while that might throw out some some really interesting ideas, I think sometimes it's problematic because it it is it, it's academic in the sense that it doesn't actually link up with a lot of what we know about this form of of movement. And I think there have been a lot of assumptions made that aren't um, borne out in reality. I mean, a good example of that is is around the so-called sinking island. Uh, states. And I think that that, that terminology is problematic. Um, it's also seen as quite disrespectful to the people who live in those countries. But it's the, the reason why it's problematic from a policy perspective is because, as I said before, it's not that one day a country gets submerged and, and then what do we do? Long before that, people are going to have to move. And so how do we facilitate that? And in turn, I mean, there are real issues then about, well, how do you preserve um, the, the self-determination rights of that population if ultimately people are all living somewhere else? Is it the case that by the time that happens, people may be second, third, fourth generation, you know, Australians, for example, or New Zealanders? Um, can you somehow preserve the um, the exclusive economic zone of a country that has uh, that can't be inhabited anymore and what happens to the resources and all of that, that, these are separate questions that I'm not examining myself but that others are and I think they're very, very interesting. But we shouldn't lose sight of the reality of how movement is going to occur. There have been all sorts of proposals from, um, you know, protocols to the Refugee Convention through to um, allocations based on quotas linked to which countries emit the most greenhouse gas emissions. I find that, again, it's interesting, but I find it problematic because I don't think we should be treating individual people as somehow like, you know, carbon credits to be traded. Um, quotas, are, uh, you know, have their place uh, in, you know, in migration perhaps, but I wouldn't want to see them being used in quite such an instrumental fashion. And this is where I think we, we can learn a lot from the refugee context, both good and bad. Um, and I think those of us who work in both contexts um, sometimes need to, you know, take off one hat and rather than put on another, kind of sit there with both and say, well, how do we actually think about these similar problems that we've got or challenges that we're facing in a way that can ultimately improve the lot of everybody? Jane, thank you so much for being on Displaced. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure. That was June McAdam, director of the Calder Centre for International Refugee Law and a professor of law at the University of New South Wales. If you want to hear more on this topic or anything that we've done in the series or on the episode today, check out our show notes at www.rescue.org displaced. And check this out. The Vox Media Podcast Network is conducting a listener survey to better serve you. It takes five minutes and would really appreciate your opinion. Take the survey at voxmedia.com slash pod survey. We are so excited about this season and we hope you are too. One way to help these conversations reach more people is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you on Displaced. You can tweet at us. I'm at Grant M. Gordon. Rob is at R. Gura Murthy. Um, you said us- my name right. After, yeah, Almost. Sometimes. 
And finally, just a thank you to Vox Media. Displace is produced by Megan Kunane. If she's around, is she around today? She's out playing tennis. She's at Joshua Tree camping right now because uh, she doesn't want to make podcasts anymore. She just wants to hang out with the weird trees of Joshua Tree. Luckily, our engineer is here, Jelani Carter, holding down the fort. Golder Arthur, our senior producer, has even turned up and is in the building. And Nishat Kerwa is the executive producer of audio. At the IRC, a huge thank you to Anna Fewer, Alex Bandea, Natalie Sarkowski, and Ben Moskowitz. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you and hear from you next week. <laughs>